0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. So us open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 16. So if you want to have your Bibles open, uh, that would help us as we process this text. As Matt said a little bit earlier, if you're visiting today, uh, you're welcome to to participate this morning. We're glad you're here. Join us in whatever endeavor is part of your worship you feel comfortable with. My name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And we are grateful that you decided to worship with us today. Uh, We started, as Matt said last week, we started talking about a vision that the elders of this congregation Uh, and our staff have put together that we're excited to share with you. And last week, I took you to Genesis chapter 3, and I told you that all sin comes down to one great variable, and that is the belief that we can't trust God. Every sin we commit falls down to whether we think God is good and whether we think God is wise. And when we don't think God is good and we don't think God is wise, then we choose to do opposite of what he's asked us to do, thus the definition of sin. And so last week I told you that not only did God realize that we did not find him good or wise, but in his goodness and in his wisdom, he sent Jesus to correct the lie to show that he can be trusted, that he is good, he is wise. And Jesus not only came to fix the problem of the lie and expose it, but he invited us into the solution that our lives are to be invested in exposing the lie as a lie and offering people the hope of truth. We're going to jump ahead in the story of the Gospels. If you are visiting, we've been going through the Bible, or the, the four, first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chronologically, looking at how we believe they probably played out over time. And we're going to jump ahead to the end now to bring into this vision why we're doing what we're doing. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So here's the backstory, story, because there's a shocking end to verse 17. Jesus had told them to go to the mountain, and Matthew indicates that when they obeyed him and went to the mountain, then he arrived. Notice that there is something on the other side of obedience that Jesus promises. When they went to the mountain, the 11 of them, Judas no longer being alive, he killed himself at the betrayal. The 11 of them go to the mountain, Jesus appears, and they worshiped him. And then Matthew records... And they doubt it. It seems an odd language choice that Matthew uses, and it's difficult to translate from the language Matthew wrote into to English. But here's what the word doubt means. They did not doubt Jesus because they were worshiping him. You don't worship something you doubt. So what did they doubt? They doubted themselves. The word that Matthew uses means hesitation or uncertainty. So by worshiping Jesus, when they realized who he was, and remember, why would they doubt themselves? Because of what they did on the night he was tortured. They abandoned him. They knew who he was, and in his worst moment in his lifetime, they all fled and abandoned him. So they had doubt whether they could do what he was asking them to do. Just like you and I, deep down inside, we have a hesitation and uncertainty about whether or not we can do what he's asking us to do. But Jesus calls them into a purpose and the purpose that Jesus calls us into is not based on you and me it's not based on our abilities or inabilities it's not based on how good we do this most of us would admit even those of us who have followed Jesus for decades we would admit we're not good at being good are we I'm the only one the rest of you are perfect I'm at the wrong church we all admit we're not good at being good, and following Jesus is difficulty because we like shiny things, and the world's full of shiny things. So we focus on Jesus, and then all of a sudden, look, squirrel, and off we go. And we wonder. You see, what happens next is Jesus takes it away from their doubt to who he is. Verse 18. They, then Jesus came to them, and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's no longer about you. It's not about me. Jesus said, it's going to be about my power, but my authority. All authority is his authority. He knows what he's talking about. He is good, and he is wise. And he bases all of our calling on his ability to produce. He says, you're going to be offering grace and truth to the world. You're going to bring healing to the world. You're going to obey me with confidence and boldness. And I'm going to change this world by what you do. And they doubted. They wondered, could we do this? And Jesus said, it's not about you. If you trust me, if you know that I'm good, and you know that I'm wise, you'll do what I ask. And if you do what I ask, my authority will be with you. So what does he ask them to do? Verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Our mission is to live a life of discipleship through our witness. No matter how confusing Christianity gets, please remember this. What Jesus asked the disciples to do and subsequently asked you and I to do as disciples is to live a life of discipleship through our witness. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower or learner. It is someone who places himself as a protege under a greater person. It's to learn from them and to follow them and to trust them. A disciple is someone who has concluded, after believing the lie, that Jesus is better than the lie and that he's revealed that God is good and God is wise. And Jesus told those that want to be disciples of his, those that want to be followers and learners of his, he doesn't say, I want you to go through graduate courses and I want you to accomplish all these things. He said, I want you to go make disciples. And the imperative verb, okay, that's fancy talk now. Let me explain what that means. What's an imperative verb? It's a bossy word. It's when someone's bossy and tells you to do something. I've been told if you had an older sister, you understand what the imperative verb is all about. Because she thought she was your mom, right? An imperative verb is Jesus saying, go make disciples. And then the subordinate verbs, the things that you do to make disciples. He says, you are to go, go, and to baptize, and to teach. And instantly, most of the church touches the brakes right here. We just tap the brakes. That's for the preacher. That's for the Bible college kid. That's for the seminary student. That's not for me. I mean, listen to me. Your teacher told you to make disciples by going. Can you go? Please answer yes, because you got here. All right? If you're like, I just woke up and I was here, then you didn't. You went. You chose to come to church today. Can you baptize? Well, in some churches know it's got to be the clergy. Not here. My favorite moments. One of my favorite moments of all time was baptizing both of my sons in this place. It's watching fathers baptize their children and mothers baptize their children. I've even seen the joy, the beautiful joy of husbands baptizing their wives. I'm like, you can baptize. Can you teach? And you're like, ah, I'm out. No, you can. Because if Teaching required knowing everything who could teach. You just need to know the truth and share the truth you know and open the word of God and teach people what Jesus said because they don't care what you said. You see, so here's the question. Jesus is bossy. He said, go make disciples. How? By going to where they are, by baptizing them and teaching them. Can you do that? Church, the answer is what? Yes. Every single one of us can do everything Jesus asks us to do. Because our lives are to be lived in such a way that others will want to follow the Jesus we've committed our lives to. I want you to remember that. Our lives are to be lived in such a way that other people will see what we have in Jesus and want to follow him too. They won't want to follow you. And they certainly don't want to follow me. And we're not inviting them to become a part of a church, like a brand. We're inviting them to follow Jesus. Why? Because we're satisfied customers. Because we believe following Jesus is worth it. Paul understood this in the book of Acts. While Paul was planting churches throughout the known world, and he was working to plant churches so the gospel would grow and people would be invited, he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Do you notice that? He said, Jesus told me to make disciples the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's what you and I have been asked to do. It's not difficult. We've made it more difficult in the church. But you have a story. Tell your story. Paul would remind us of the opportunities we have before us to another church. The churches found throughout the, the empire of Rome. Paul wrote a letter that was passed from church to church to church, copied and sent to other congregations. Not formal churches like this, but house churches and gatherings of Christians. And this letter went around. And in this letter, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the answer to the lie. Is God good, church? And is he wise? And they said, if you can preach Jesus and invite them to the wisdom of Jesus, they will understand how good God has been to them. So everyone who goes after Christ and seeks him as Lord and Savior, will be saved. Jesus is faithful. But he then asks a series of questions. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You see, we live in a world that's confused. We think that believing there is a God makes your relationship with God okay. It's not true. You see, every one of us is a creature of God, but not every one of us is a child of God. Everyone is aware of God, but not everyone is a follower of God. There's more to being a disciple of Jesus than believing he's right. It's actually experiencing how right he is. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told these same disciples, you will be my witnesses. Well, what's the requirement of a witness? I'm told there's only one requirement of a witness – You had to be there when what you're witnessing to happened. You can't witness secondhand material. You can't say a friend of mine told me he shot her. They'd say that's, you weren't an eyewitness. You can't give true evidence that you witnessed it. So when Jesus said you're to be my witnesses, does he say you need to know the library of every thought about scripture? Absolutely not. He's also told not to be ignorant. But if you're waiting until you know everything, you'll die waiting. He says be my witnesses. Share your story. How has knowing the lie and seeing the answer to the lie in Jesus changed you? Could you answer that question? You see, because when I meet Christians, those that really love Jesus, it's always happened after they really loved themselves. And when they realize by really loving themselves, it it left them desperate and empty and no real hope because they couldn't control their world. But when they realize that that emptiness is found in Jesus Christ, Then when I ask questions like, how has knowing Jesus changed you? They can tell stories. Oh, they're not sermons, praise the Lord. And they're not Bible lectures, but they know their story. Can you tell your story? Can you tell anybody what a difference Jesus has made in your life? You see, our lives are to be lived in such a way that others will want to follow Jesus that we've committed ourselves to. And in verse 20, Jesus takes it even further from our mission to our method. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's our method? Our method is trusting his promises in our obedience. A follower and a learner does what their teacher asks to. I joked about this before, but I remember when our oldest son came home in his first year in kindergarten, and we asked him to do something, and he looked at us at the dinner table. I don't know if it was like we asked him a question, and he said, Pass. Excuse me? I said, you need to go do this, I'll pass. Or we asked him, what do you think about this, pass? And I said, what, pass? And Heather and I had to figure this out. And his kindergarten teacher told him that in school, if they didn't like the question, they could pass. And I said, that ain't school. (laughs) Answer the question. See, so I want to ask you a question here. When your teacher says, you're going to do this, and it's good for you to do this, it comes down to that question, isn't it? Is he good, and is he wise? So the question of the day is, do we trust that Jesus will be with us? Because instantly we start doubting. If I start talking to him, what if they ask me a question? What if they ask about suffering? Or what if they ask about uh, issues that are bigger than me and I don't know all the answers and I, and I just don't know and we begin to panic. Remember what Jesus said, I will be with you. Always. Even to the end of the age. Even if you and I don't have the answer, is our God able to work in the question? The answer is yes. And so is our obedience duty Afraid that if we don't do it, God's going to get ticked at us. Absolutely not. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Paul, when he's talking about obedience, he says, For the love of Christ compels us. It's not duty, it's a privilege. I have these conversations, it seems like, every week as a pastor. Do I I have to get baptized? Oh, you don't have to get baptized, you get to. Do I have to love my spouse? No, no, you don't have to love your spouse. You get to. Do I have to lead my children? No, 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 you get to. We get the privilege of getting in on the story Jesus is writing, don't we? And if you see it as an obligation, you've misunderstood who he is. Because he doesn't make us do anything. He asks us out of love to respond to him. As he obeyed his father out of love, he's teaching us to obey him out of the same love. Remember, it's by his power, not by our words, not by our methods. So verse 19, therefore go and make disciples. So what is this good news we have to offer? I'm going to show you what we learned last week and what it looks like in the New Testament. I'm going to give you two things that I want you to put in your pocket. And if you know they're true, hold on to them for the rest of your life. First of all is only Jesus fulfills us. Only Jesus can fulfill us. He exposes the lie that you can't trust God. As I said earlier, and I'll say it one more time, I believe most of us who follow Jesus are following Jesus because we followed ourselves too long and we were empty and broken and hopeless, right? I mean, anybody testify this morning that that's your story? You tried it your own, it didn't work, did it? And Jesus is the fulfillment. Why would you come? Why would you give? Why would you sacrifice? Because you understand that Jesus not only fulfilled me, he can fulfill everybody It exposes the lie that God is not good. John 10.10, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the fullest. So that fullest life is hard because Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, I'll make your marriage perfect. I'll make your kids obey you. I'll make your business successful. I'll allow you to pass every exam you take. There's a lot of people who use Jesus. If you don't give me the life I want, then you lied to me. Now sometimes the fullest life Jesus can give us is to take away some of the things we hold on to the tightest. It's a lifestyle of trusting and obeying, not a lifestyle of manipulating. The second promise that you hold on to is only Jesus offers freedom. So he not only exposes the lie, but he gives us someone worth following. John 8:36. If the Son sets you free, you will be really free. In America, that's a value. Freedom, unfortunately, we think freedom is to do whatever I want. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, whatever I want. Jesus said, no, I'm going to make you free from the things that makes you want to do those things. I'm going to break you free from the addictions, from the sin, from the self-service. I'm going to break you free from the public opinion and the stress that comes with that. I'm going to show you that you can take off your mask and be real with me. And when you understand who Jesus sees you to be, then you understand you don't have to be what other people want you to be. When you see how Jesus sees you, you can say, yeah, I've blown a large section of my life and I regret with great shame what I've done. And Jesus said, no, no, I don't see you that way. Remember in the Garden of Eden, when God came in and he said, Adam and Eve, where are you? He knew where they were, but they were hiding themselves. And he asked them, why are you hiding themselves? And they said, we saw our nakedness and we became ashamed. And God said, nothing about you should be ashamed. God simply said, you've drawn that conclusion on your own. What you did to yourself is what brought you shame. God says, I see you no differently. And then God began, began the restorative tract by sending Jesus. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not the gift of eternal life in being self-satisfied or experiencing your own or making your own place. It's, no, it's only found in Christ. So you and I can say, I have experienced the joy of Jesus. So let me ask you a very simple question. Do you know anybody who'd want that? Do you know anybody who's working themselves to the bone right now, has no real satisfaction, is holding on to everything they have with desperation, hoping it'll keep them afloat, and we know deep inside it won't. The water's going to rise, and it's going to sink. Do you know anybody who needs to know that you really have been blessed by being a follower of Jesus? So how do I live out this trust? I love what Paul says to two different preachers. Well, Titus and Timothy, he writes these encouragement. Here's one example. In Titus 2.10, So you can be fully trusted so that in every way you will make the teaching about God attractive. You don't attack people with good news, do you? You don't walk up and get in their face and make them feel stupid. Ah, you thought you had cancer. You don't! That's a bad way to give good news. I'd much rather walk up and say, you're healed by the grace of God. He chose to heal you. You see, in moments like this, if the good news becomes a bludgeon, we don't make it attractive. We don't simply say, yeah, I screwed up like you screwed up. I'm no different than you. I struggle with the same things you struggle with all the time. And we're probably not even that different right now, except that Jesus Christ, by his grace, is changing me. He's changing my heart and my desires. He's changing my appetites. He's changing my attitudes. The things I never could do, Jesus is doing. Do you know anybody who would like to believe that they could be fixed? In 1 Peter, Peter wrote these words, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do with gentleness and respect. The hope you have. You're not asked to preach sermons. Can you go? Can you teach? And can you baptize? The answer is, yeah. And if you have a story with Jesus, you got something to tell. There's a parable that makes a lot of sense to me and I'd like to use it this morning. There were four men that lived in a very desperate state in a land that was really depleted and they were looking. There had to be something better. And so the four men went through the the wilderness and through the forest and they came to the forest and they saw this huge high wall. They didn't know that wall existed. But this was wall, it was too high for them to scale on their own. So they worked together and they went back in the woods and they, they built themselves this rope ladder that they could climb up. And the first guy got to the top of the wall and he looked over and he looked at his friends with a big smile and he just jumped in. The second guy scurried up the ladder, and he got to the top, and he looked at the other two, and he said, hurry, hurry, and he jumped in. The third one went up, did the same thing. He looked down at the fourth one, and he said, you've got to see this, and he jumped in. The fourth one got to the top, and he looked over. It was the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. It was lavish and rich and green. It was just a beautiful garden. It's what they always dreamed could be and never experienced, and the fourth guy got to the top, and then he stopped, and he went back down the ladder. He ran back home to tell his family and friends what he just found. And the parable ends this way. Which one of these men really understood the opportunity before him? The answer is the fourth one. Because he knew it was there and he knew it was available to him, but was as most important as who was with him when he went over the wall. And I look at that story and I think, and I can get emotional doing this, I'll try not to. When I think of the people that stood on the top of that wall and invited me over, I think of an elder in our church. He was a, such an old illustration. He was a telephone repairman. For those of you under 20, I'll tell you later in the hallway what that is. (laughs) His name was Don Root. Don was an elder in my home church and he was a telephone repairman and he would have great stories of getting chased by dogs and, and attack cats and things like this when he went in people's homes. And he would fix your phone line at your house and fix your telephone or replace it. And He was an elder who would pick us up, my brothers and me. He would pick us up from our house on a Sunday afternoon and take us to his house where we'd make homemade pizza and shoot pool and watched the Bears game, and he'd talk about Jesus in the midst of all of that. No, no great lessons or devotionals, just investment in a young kid. He showed me what was on the other side of the wall. Then I worked for a man named Bob Millette. Bob was a camp manager. Bob had been a preacher, and he was a fantastic preacher, but he was serving kids working at a church camp. And Bob hired me in seventh grade to work for seven summers for him, washing dishes, cutting grass, lifeguarding at pools, and he invested in me. There were times that Bob invited me to the top of the wall. I know there were a lot of times he wanted to shove me in, but he was patient. He let me see what it was. And then when I went back down the ladder, it wasn't to invite other people. Bob would be patiently. He'd come down the ladder with me and take me from where I'd gone back to the mess and help me to the top. And he was a spiritual father to me that I'll never regret. My college roommate, Mike Kiergaard, I'll never be able to explain to him the impact he had on my life. Because... Mike always wanted to preach the gospel. He believed in the power of the word of God. He just had a maturity to him that I didn't have in college. And God put me with this, my friend, and he challenged me. I thought preachers had no fun. I thought they lived lives, always had a suit and tie on. And, you know, all they did was read the Bible and pray. And I didn't want anything to do with that. I thought, that's a boring life. I want to have fun. I want to play golf. I want to eat food. You know, I had no idea what a preacher does. Still don't. But anyway... But Mike had such a vision of what you could do with the gospel that he got me to believe and he showed me what was on the other side of the wall. And then I look and I, I think of Justin Shepherd, a man who taught me how to preach. He's the guy who taught me a simple principle. It doesn't matter how well you say it, just say something. Say something that gives life. He was the best preacher I ever heard. I've been surrounded by a bunch. I can say it because he's not in the room. Michael DeFazio is fantastic. We have people in this room that are listening to me preach right now. They're far better preachers than me and that's the flat truth. And they sit and listen graciously every week to me. And I listen to preachers on podcasts that make me sick to my stomach Why I even try to do this. And I'm not looking for you to say, oh, you're fine. No, no, I'm average. I love doing what I get to do. You see, because I get to stand on the top of the wall and tell people, you need to get over the wall. Because on the other side's life. And it's only, Jesus is the only one who got us to the wall. And what do we do with this? You see, I look in my life and say, I can teach, I can baptize, I can go. Not because of who I am, because of what I'm talking about. You see, this vision of our church is about discipleship. It's about inviting people into the life we've chosen and show them the benefit of trusting Christ. Our vision as a church is to prepare people to discover completeness in God. If you weren't with us here last week, we unveiled four visions, and I'm going to remind you of them this morning. Four things we would like to do as a church if you will support it. And as you leave the room, there are tables by the doors with booklets. If you didn't get a booklet, we hope you'll take it. It'll give you more detail than I'm going to be able to give you on a Sunday morning. Because you didn't come to hear details. You came to hear the truth of the gospel, and we hope to inspire you to read through that and see your role. But Scott McKnight says that when Jesus told a parable... The parable was intended to get you to do this. Imagine a world like this. Imagine a world like this. So I want to tell you the four things we think this church could accomplish with some sacrifice. That we want to plant where the gospel can take root in places it's not taken root yet. We want to plant churches in Japan. Imagine with me a family living on the island of Japan who begins a transformation from a false religion to the freedom that Jesus brings through the cross and the resurrection. Imagine a world where churches are available in every city in Japan to testify to and create communities of testimony where people that have followed Jesus can share the joy of following Jesus. Imagine the generations who will one day join us around the throne of Jesus as he recreates the new heavens and earth. Listen to this from a man named Yoshio Momoto from Osaka, Japan, who the people we investing in over there won to Christ. Listen to what he said. I've always hoped there was a loving and kind God, but I did not know who could tell me about him. Now that I've heard that there is a God and he is loving, I'm overwhelmed. I feel like I want to become a Christian. And he was baptized into Christ on June 28, 2015. Because somebody went, somebody taught, and somebody baptized into Jesus. We'd like to begin a Thursday night worship service. Imagine a family or friend in the Four States area who doesn't know the truth of Jesus and doesn't understand the fulfillment of Jesus and would be incredibly intimidated to come into a big room with all the traffic and goes on here, who wants the joy of being freed of their sins but doesn't have any idea how that could happen. Imagine a friend who's been hurt by the church community, who was involved in a church that wasn't loving and graceful and redeeming. Imagine them finding a community of faith where they could be loved as they are, forgiven for what they've done, and discipled to become exactly who Jesus asked them to be and created them to be. Imagine that church meeting meeting them where they are and serving them away from all the deterrence that might keep them from coming on a Sunday morning to a big room like this. We'd like to build where the gospel is already present. We'd like to remodel our children's ministry space, and this one's easy for us. Imagine the young people of our community being excited and loved as they learn about Jesus. Imagine with us a space that's remodeled to serve them better, that is safer and gives them protection so that their hearts can experience their identities in Jesus. Imagine the generations that could be impacted by those young kids down that hallway today and across this hallway who need to know that Jesus Christ is real. They see it in us and they'll tell the next generation. We'd like to construct a new worship theater on our campus Imagine our Sunday morning services being able to serve close to 1,000 more adults to gather together to be inspired by the gospel. Imagine creating a more intimate space for those who don't love large crowds on Sunday mornings but still desire to be a part of the body. Imagine a space that would allow us to provide something in in larger rooms for classes, meetings, community events, and the like with a greater dexterity than we currently have. What would it take for us to imagine this? On top of the budget that operates this ministry, our investment in this vision looks like this. It'd take us $1 million for Japan, 250000 for the Thursday night services over three years, $1 million for children's ministry space, and $2.5 million for this new worship theater, which would be attached to all of your right outside of the foyer. When we look at this, it's $4.5 million. It's a huge ask. This vision will require sacrifice. But we're asking you, this isn't manipulation. God didn't open the sky and say, do these four things. He didn't. We've just done our research. We've looked at the numbers. We've looked at the people coming. We've looked at the patterns. And we think the time is now is to strike. And we think God's provided this opportunity. But we can't do it. We can't do it with the giving level we have right now. It's going to require sacrifice from all of us. And so we're unashamed to ask of it, knowing that you could say No. But I want you to stand on the top of that wall. I want you to look back at the number of people who would love to know what's on the other side and ask yourself, would you sacrifice for that? Because it's going to take trust for us to do this. Let me just do this briefly. All of this material is in the booklet. I encourage you to read through it and find yourself in this. We're asking every single person in this church to take one step of trust forward. For some of you, it's going to be to learn to trust. There are some that don't give financially to ministry at all. And we're not sitting in judgment, but we're telling you there's an opportunity. That you could sacrifice something for the kingdom work and help people get to the wall. And there are others who give occasionally, but they don't give intentionally. Every now and then they'll reach in and, and we'll do this or do this, or they feel led one Sunday to do this, and, and that's fine, and we appreciate that. God's going to bless that giving in the lives of people. But we want you to step into, if you don't give ever, to try to learn how to give regularly. And for some, it's to in established trust. You give regularly, but you're, you're giving a little bit. You're, you're not tithing. The, the 10% standard, I know it's horrifying to people today, but I can give you a list of people, including my wife and I, we give 10% of our income, not to be boastful, because we believe that's the biblical standard. We haven't missed it a day. God's not gonna steal from you. And for some of us, it's gonna be stepping up to a standard we've never done before and say, I'm gonna try this for a season. Others, it's sacrificial trust. We have people that give 10% and they're gonna decide for the next two years to make this happen that they're gonna sacrifice more than they've ever given. And then others, abundant trust. We have people that are very sacrificial and I've had conversations with a few of them and they're willing to give over and above anything they've ever given before because they believe that we should be helping Japan know Jesus. They believe those kids are worth it. And they believe the people that are unchurched in our community who don't know Jesus need a chance. If I've made you feel guilty, you've misunderstood my heart. If I've made you feel challenged, and you totally understand me. We can't do this on the budget we have, and we believe we're supposed to do it. But we're going to ask you to pray. This vision will cost every one of us and challenge every single one of us. As we conclude my time, and Carrollton's about to lead us in my favorite song that they do. They have a lot of good music, and I own every stick of it. But this song is one of my favorites. It speaks to my heart every time. brings me chills. It's a song about God's faithfulness. Remember, the disciples gathered with Jesus and he gave them the great commission and they doubted whether they could. Ask God if you can. Because he is faithful. Remember, he's good and he's wise. He can be trusted. And Jesus Christ proved that. So as you think of what you and your family might sacrifice for others, let's stand together and sing.